Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the Nasdaq on the desk tonight. Carter Worth, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Julie Beal. We've got breaking news at this hour. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand man and the former vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, has passed away at the age of 99. He was just over a month away from turning 100 years old. Our Becky Quick looks back at Munger's long life and his under-recognized role in helping Warren Buffett become one of the richest people on earth. Charlie Munger was best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man, their investing partnership dating back decades. I would say that every time I'm with Charlie, I'll get at least some new slant on an idea that, that causes me to rethink certain things. And, and we've had absolutely, we've had so much fun in the partnership over the years. It's been almost hilarious. It's been so much fun. Buffett credits the Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman with teaching him the importance of paying up for high-quality businesses. When he weaned me away from the idea of buying very so-so companies at very cheap prices, knowing that there was some small profit in, and looking for really wonderful businesses that we could buy at fair prices. It's not that much fun to... Uh, by a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. The willingness to pay for quality paid off for Munger and Buffett in deals like their 1972 purchase of C's Candies and their decision in the late 1980s to buy a substantial stake in Coca-Cola. Before his Berkshire days, Munger owned his own successful investment firm and practiced law. In 1962, he and a group of attorneys founded Munger Tolls, now known as Munger Tolls & Olson, a very prominent law firm. Munger, like Buffett, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and as teenagers, they both worked at Buffett's grandfather's grocery store, but not at the same time, as Munger was seven years older. It wasn't until Buffett was in his late 20s and Munger was in his mid-30s and living in California that they were introduced to each other by mutual friends. We had dinner together in 1959. In five minutes... Yeah, Charlie was rolling on the floor laughing at his own jokes, and I do the same thing. They began to spend hours each week on the telephone, talking investments, and Buffett urged Munger to trade in a career in law for one in investing. I met Charlie, and he was practicing law, and I told him that was okay as a hobby, but it was a lousy business. <laughs> so he, he Fortunately, wanted... I listened. <laughs> From 1962 until 1975, Munger's investment partnership produced a 19.8% compound annual return versus just 5% for the Dow. It wasn't until 1978 that Munger formally joined Berkshire as vice chairman. But Munger's even-tempered, risk-averse, and pragmatic approach to investing was a major influence on Buffett from the time they first met, helping Berkshire Hathaway grow into a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that owns well-known businesses like Dairy Queen, Geico, Hellsberg Diamonds, and Burlington Northern. Munger, however, didn't limit himself to just Berkshire. He was chairman of Wesco Financial from 1984 until 2011, when it was totally assimilated into Berkshire. During those years, he was known for his deadpan humor and straight-shooting style at shareholder meetings, where he interacted at length with his investors. 
After Wesco, Munger moved the show and his growing collection of fans to another company where he remained chairman, the Daily Journal. Charlie? Yeah. One of my favorite lines from you is you want to hire the guy with the IQ of 130 that thinks it's 120, and the guy with an IQ of 150 who thinks it's 170 will just kill you. You must be thinking about Elon Musk. <laughs> he brought his blistering one-liners to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings, too. What I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. And professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it, it's, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. That's the way I got married. My wife lowered her expectations. And despite a net worth of around $2 billion, for Munger, money wasn't everything. All you succeed in doing in your life is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper. And you get better and better but only that for all your life. It's a failed life. Life is more than being shrewd at passive wealth accumulation. Well, with that, we're through. Becky Quick joins us now. Becky, you knew uh, Charlie better than anybody at this network, covered Berkshire Hathaway for so long. We all knew Charlie for his his wit, uh, his mongerism, so to speak. Um, but I think the interplay between Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger is really fascinating, the friendship, but also sort of the give and take and how Charlie was the true foil to Warren Buffett in terms of bouncing investment ideas. I remember Warren Buffett called Charlie the abominable no man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, really, that really captured it all. Yeah, kind of uh, saying no to, to Warren when nobody else could or, or would, saying this, this doesn't work and here's why. Um, look, they, they, they did figure out together uh, a different thought of investing, a different way of building things. Warren Buffett had, had been uh, an, an acolyte of kind of this idea before, Ben Graham's ideas, that you go around looking for cigar butts and you can get a few more smokes out of the last few drags on that cigar butt, buying good businesses, decent businesses at really cheap prices. Charlie Munger is the one who kind of changed Warren Buffett's thinkings on these things, where he said we should be buying great businesses at decent prices. You don't have to go so low and just get a, a great bargain price for it if you have a great business that will eventually take care of itself. Uh, Buffett has been very outspoken about how Charlie shaped him and all of those things. Today, Warren Buffett putting out a statement saying Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration, wisdom and participation. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, when I sat down with, uh, with, with Charlie, he did talk a little bit about how things started at Berkshire Hathaway. Here, here's what he had to say. Is it whoever, but I did not really think that we'd ever have one. It would, in the, so many hundreds of billions in Berkshire. I did not anticipate when Warren and I were starting with our little fiddly start that we'd ever get to a hundred billion, much less several hundred billion. It's, 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 it was an amazing occurrence. 
what happened that you didn't anticipate? What, what led to that success? Well, that we got did? a little less crazy than most people, and a little less stupid than most people, and that really helped us. Then in addition, we were given as much longer time to run than most people because something kept us alive in our 90s. And it gave us a long track from our little fiddling start all the way to the 90s. Those are the two things that really happened. And of course, we wised up over time. We got into better and better companies. And we understood more and more of the bad things that could happen to you and how easy they could creep in. And we avoided them, avoided them even more assiduously when we were old than we did when we were young. And it all, it all worked. I think back in 2015, for the 50th anniversary of Berkshire, you wrote um, in the shareholders letter that, among many other things, um, you had a $60 billion pile of cash at that point. You thought that that pile of cash would decline over time because you'd be able to buy more and more things. Now you've got almost $160 billion in cash. Is there an opportunity for a really big purchase with, with that? And do you think you'll see well, one? Well, of course, there's yeah. an opportunity for a purchase a lot bigger that people can make who don't have as 160. We have $160 billion in cash, plus a great credit rating we deserve. And who in the hell has that? Not very many. Yes, but, but, but what it's going to be, I can't tell you. It, ha it, ha it can't be anything too small. Because it doesn't matter how good it is, we're of a size now, or too small just doesn't move the needle very much. So we have we need something big to come along and use up all our cash and some borrowing. But who's more likely to find something than a guy who has 160 billion in cash, plus a long history of buying bargains? I don't think it's hopeless. It, it may have to be done by some different people. You know that the next time we may not be able just to squeeze a little more lemon juice out of the old lemons. We, we may be able to, we may have to squeeze some new lemons. Meaning new people may have to make the decisions. But who can make them better than somebody that has watched the early process all through all those years? and seeing how well it works, and who starts with a little legacy, 160 billion of cash. So you're talking about Greg Abel, G. Jane. Yes. Any, Ted and Todd. Or somebody not yet identified. Yeah. Melissa, that was just two weeks ago today, and um, Charlie Munger at 99 months, or 99 years and 11 months, really um, still had great command of, of everything that he saw, very uh, quick mentally, uh, very capable of sitting and, and kind of reflecting on all of these things. But uh, he's a, a huge reason why Berkshire Hathaway is the company that it is today, and he will be sorely missed. Are there investments that Berkshire Hathaway has held or has currently that has Charlie Munger's fingerprints all over it? Sure. I mean, probably BYD is the biggest example of that. Uh, they got in very early, and that was something that Charlie Munger was very excited about because of the guy who was running the company. Um, there were a couple of trips 
to China, one with Warren and Charlie both uh, traveling to China to see uh, their, their investment there. And I think they were both kind of blown away by what they saw. But um, Costco at different times. But BYD is probably the biggest example of that. Right. All right. Uh, Becky, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Becky Quick on Charlie Munger. Um, very sad news tonight to digest. He was a, a larger-than-life force in the investment scene guy. Yeah. No, it's incredible. You know, you want to say to Becky, I'm sorry for your loss because how close she is right. with, with Mr. Munger and Mr. Buffett clearly over these years. I mean, that's more than a friendship. I mean, that's a long relationship that they've had. I'm sure it's an emotional night for Becky. But in terms of the loss for the community, you learn a lot of things. I mean, I'm sure this show sort of flew in the face of everything they believed in. And I'm sure sometimes if they had it on, they would sort of wince. But the, the genius of what they do, just understanding good businesses and the power of investing and staying with something, I don't think any of us should forget that. He's also been a critic of uh, bad corporate governance practices, calling companies out. He's called, uh, you know, investing in cryptocurrency, gambling and drag. He's definitely, he doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to so many topics. No. I mean, the Costco thing is interesting because uh, um, uh, Munger was on the board in 97 and Buffett bought in 98 and he held it all the way through until it spiked post-COVID and they sold their Costco position um, in 2020 after it's and it still is right now at that relative high, has not made a new high relative. Yeah, it's interesting what Guy just said, though, you know, like fast money. And, and again, there's investment styles for all sorts of people. And I think that, you know, if you are a trader and, that, and the like, you, you learn lessons from people like Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett. We've been listening to Becky. I, as long as I've been in the business, I feel like I've been listening to her on a quarterly basis, interview those. And every single one of those interviews, I've taken something away that's helped me think about the markets. Right. Uh, Julie. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, us at Kane, we're long-term quality investors, so a lot of Charlie's ethos is very much in ours. And what I appreciate so much about him is the humility he took to investing. He never tried to make it fancy. He never tried to exclude people from understanding it like we're such brilliant people up on the mountaintop declaring what is important and what's good. He really made it accessible. And I think that was his genius in creating simplicity and understanding fundamentals. And so he'll be very missed. We're looking at this footage of the annual meeting, which is so widely attended, so many people want to go to meet. It was, it was almost like meeting rock stars here. But these were average investors, for the most part, who invested in Berkshire Hathaway because they believed in, in the investing ethos that Julie had outlined. So it's amazing to think that, you know, even before the age of a fast money or so on, he opened up this annual meeting to legions of investors who then learned from them. Groundbreaking without question. It's interesting in the last clip that we watched, Becky's interview, she mentioned $160 billion of cash. I think it's 157. But what's interesting about that is, I mean, that's a record amount of cash that they currently have. And the bears like myself will say that's because maybe they look at the climate and say there's nothing. Worth. And the flip side of the coin is you heard Mr. Munger speak to it. We're just waiting for the right size deal to come along, and it has to be something will move the needle. And think about maybe the most incredible of all, in the financial crisis, there was one person left. Goldman Sachs turned to him, mm -hmm. and everyone said, if he, if he gets my stamp of approval, we're okay. It was the only thing left. Right. Mm -hmm. Only thing. Yep. Uh, let's now bring in value investor Whitney Tilson, who attended the last 26 Berkshire Hathaway meetings. He's a longtime Charlie Munger follower. Whitney, great to have you with us. Thanks for bringing your perspective on Charlie. I know you've known him for a long time, um, and, and you're part of poor, poor Charlie's almanac <laughs> because Munger is so known for so many of these Mungerisms. 
Um, what are your favorites? What really sticks with you? Yeah, well, uh, I've been listening with interest to uh, all the comments uh, from, from the folks there about uh, what a legendary investor Charlie is. And that's how I first discovered him when I started my little hedge fund back in the late 1990s, discovered Buffett and Munger, been going to all the Berkshire meetings since then. And then Charlie would have um, his own Wesco and more recently Daily Journal annual meetings, you know, a couple weeks afterward, usually. And um, it was like, it's sort of like a church and you've got the Pope and that's Warren Buffett. And then you've got the senior Cardinal uh, Munger. And uh, uh, what I quickly discovered is that I was getting a lot more from both of these wise old gentlemen uh, in areas outside of investing. And that's what I think, you know, once people discover these guys, most people discover them because they're trying to make money. They're, they're investing their own money or they're in the investment business. Uh, but let me give you an example. I remember more than 20 years ago sitting there at the Wesco annual meeting and Munger in response to some question said, all I want to know is where I'm going to die so I never go there. And everybody laughed. And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, once you've reached a certain position in life that basically all of you in the audience have reached a certain level of education and financial security, um, your main focus in life should be uh, not to screw it up. Um, so he, he always talked about invert, always invert. So he said, most people, the way they think and approach life is, is you know, how can I reach for that brass ring and reach another level of success, right? And what he said is, is instead, once you've reached a certain point pretty early in, in, in your life, uh, your main goal should be how not to screw it up. And so he gave many of his famous speeches, like the 24 causes of human misjudgment. He was always telling stories of how people who had it all brought themselves to ruin. And that really made a big impact on my life. And so after being one of the contributors, uh, here's a copy of Poor Charlie's Almanac, which, by the way, is the first thing I would recommend anyone read um, if they want to understand Charlie. Uh, I was one of the contributors to this book because I was so obsessive um, that it was one of the great honors of, of my life writing this book uh, that's a tribute to him. It's amazing how much he has contributed to, you know, things and subjects outside of investing, Whitney. But I'm curious, as an investor, what did you take away from Munger? Were there investments that you were led specifically to by Munger or, or Munger's thinking, at least when you're when you're thinking about going in? Yeah, well, uh, he. I wish I had followed him more closely. I, I sort of followed the first part because he was very clear, very clear thinking uh, about investing in high quality businesses, even if you have to pay a little uh, uh, up for it going in. And that led me to some of the greatest investments in my career in companies like Apple and McDonald's and Home Depot and all. Um, where I didn't control myself as well as I should have is, is I should still own those stocks today. Uh, um, thanks to Charlie's teachings, I identified some of the greatest businesses of all time and owned them for a while. But, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I'd had more of Munger's patience and um, and owned them, uh, you know, for a lifetime, because that's what he and uh, Buffett have done with uh, their most successful investments. Whitney, you've dedicated. It's interesting. I mean, you're a disciple, clearly. You've had a great career. But, you know, I listened to Mr. Munger talk about, you know, giving back and Mr. Buffett as well. You've done that as well. And my sense is, you know, a lot of things you've done on the continent of Africa may be inspired by the teachings of Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, both of them are are very generous and philanthropic and are giving their fortunes away to their uh, charities. Uh, but interestingly, both of them mostly spent their time on what they felt they were uniquely good at, which was investing and compounding their money over time. Uh, I've uh, probably spent more, a greater percentage of my time, um, you know, traveling to Africa, supporting Ukraine over the past year, et cetera, um, just because it's something I'm very passionate about. But, um, you know, I tip my hat to these gentlemen uh, for being laser focused on what they were uniquely good at and building enormous fortunes that are going to make a, a big difference to millions of people uh, for generations. Whitney, you've discussed like how much you've learned from it, about investing from them over the last couple of decades, and, and you've seen them do it over you know, very different market cycles. Have there ever been any big surprises? Have, have, have you ever seen their metal be tested in, in a way that surprised you? Well, I do remember back in the early days during the internet bubble when Berkshire stock hit a multi-year low uh, in March 10th. The day the Nasdaq peaked in March of 2000 was the day Berkshire Hathaway bottomed. And I remember the annual meeting right around that time is about a month or two later. Um, and everyone was questioning, you know, how how they could have missed this. Uh, and they didn't care one iota. Um, they were just so comfortable in their own skins. They knew it was a bubble and they, it just didn't bother them. And that's happened again and again. Um, they have you know, more recently, they've been both of them been super vocal about the dangers of cryptocurrencies, just pure instruments of speculation and have warned people away from it. And, you know, there the story's still out. You know, Bitcoin's at what, thirty seven thousand uh, dollars these days. Uh, so uh, I uh, I'm pretty confident, though, that they will be vindicated on this just as they've been vindicated on uh, all of their other big calls over the years. Can there be, I don't want to ask this in this way, but can there be another Charlie Munger in, you know, an investor who spans the generations, who has that sort of following, who can speak out so honestly about so many different topics in such a blunt manner? It just doesn't feel like the environment can produce anyone like a Charlie Munger anymore. Yeah, uh, I hear you. Like, I'm struggling to think of other than Buffett himself, um, mm -hmm. who's seven years younger and hopefully has, you know, many more years to live. Um, they're they're both cut from the same mold. Uh, but after that, boy, um, it's it's hard to think, um, you know, M Munger was really, really one of a kind. I don't think there'll ever be anyone um, who could ever replace him or anyone who will be quite like him. Whitney, thank you. Good to see My you. My pleasure. Whitney Tilson. Julie Beal, um, what do you take from Munger in, in how you invest? You're talking about how the investment style is probably more similar than, than the investment style of, of any of these traders here on this desk to Charlie Munger's. You know, I, I talk to clients a lot um, about how, you know, the real value that I add is when I say no, it's not when I say yes. And I think it's very much in line with always wanting to be extremely discerning and not just being attracted to something because it's a little shiny or it's a little cheap. And it's hard sometimes because you'll think there's a real opportunity and you're so smart for wising it up and finding it out, but often the situations are pretty simple and straightforward. You need to understand your businesses and you need to say no, you need to be extremely discerning 
and not just go for something that's a kind of quick flip because chances are someone knows something a little bit more than you do. So I think for me, it's, it's just being very discerning and focusing on quality. And sometimes that's very hard because quality won't be sexy. It'll be out of favor, just like that time period in the NASDAQ. There are definitely periods where at Kane we lag because we don't have the sexiest companies, but they're really great businesses. And over a cycle, if you can have the discipline and the character to just sit still, sit on your hands and not just trade to you know create value or make yourself feel like you're so important, you really end up better if we're off for the long term. All right, we got to take a quick break. Again, the news here, Charlie Munger, dead at age 99. Back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back to Fast Money. The GLD ETF rising by more than a percent today and now at its highest level since May. It is up more than 9% over the past two months alone, while the S&P 500 is up close to 6% in that period. In a couple minutes, we'll hear from one market watcher who says gold's rise could fuel a risk-on rally into the new year. But before we get to that, let's ask here on the desk, can stocks and gold really keep moving higher together? Guy? It's interesting, and Carter clearly has thoughts, but one of his theses for a while was rates would go lower and at a certain point stocks would follow. If rates continue to go lower, the dollar will go lower. That will be a tailwind for gold. I think stocks will then subsequently go lower as well. So, yes, there's clearly a scenario where both can happen. I just don't think it's probable. And I think gold's within a whisper of having a huge breakout to the upside. What do you think gold is telling us, Dan? Um, well, it's interesting. I, like. You know, Whitney just mentioned Bitcoin also touched 40,000 today. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it seems like there is an appetite for sort of safe haven sort of things. They're buying treasuries, they're buying gold, and they're buying Bitcoin, and they're selling dollars. And they, I agree with the guy. I think eventually they're going to get the stocks, and they're going to think they're a little expensive. All right. Carter, uh, we'll get to your two cents on gold in a minute. But you put a note out this morning on bonds. Yeah. Well, so... Think oil was stretched at 95 a barrel. Dollar was straight up. Yields were straight up at five. And guess what's happened? Oil has collapsed. The dollar has collapsed. Yields have collapsed. And ultimately, of course, I do believe that this, uh, equities will go that way. But let's look at some yield charts. Uh, we have three. They're identical. Um, and the first is we know that we have now 
sold in terms of bonds have rallied. Rates have dropped from five to where we are now at four, three. And I think ultimately we're going to four and below. But look at the next iteration. There is an unfilled gap. It's esoteric uh, uh, chart theory, but um, it comes into play at 4195, uh, which is to say that was right after Labor Day. It was a Tuesday. And what happened was the uh, bond market lurched at the open, uh, yield surged, bonds sold off. And I think we're going to get there. And then the final chart for yields um, is the well-defined channel in which uh, yields were ascending before they broke. That same channel can be overlaid to the dollar and to oil, and all three have broken. Ultimately, I think equities do the same thing. So 4195 is the next test on the 10-year Treasury yield to the downside, and then after that we break fours. your, I, I your think thesis. So. Yep. All right, let's now bring in the market watcher calling for gold to fuel a risk-on rally next year. Ben Emmons is Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of Fixed Income at New Edge Wealth. Carter, as you heard, is predicting a uh, decline in the S&P 500. Um, but you're saying that the, that gold could actually be telling us that there could be a risk-on rally coming. Why is that? Yeah, it's an interesting combo, uh, Melissa. You know, normally you think of gold like a hedge against inf- inflation or uncertainty. And, and I think both still play. I think that's one reason why gold is up. And to, to Guy's point, like yields are down, dollars weaker. That's macro story for gold. But it's, it's an also a seasonal issue here. So we're in a really strong November month for stocks. Uh, it could be a good month for December, too, at least that looks like it historically. Gold has an interesting pattern here, too. It's actually doing even better than stocks in December, and specifically in years when the Fed is either easing or going towards a easing-type bias. So I think we're in this stage here. This is why I think coming from the risk-on part of the story, gold appreciates in value when there's uncertainty, it appreciates the value when there's risk on when there is a uh, apparent change of, uh, of easing uh, of, of Fed policy to, towards the easing. You, you had a note out this morning, and, and there's one little bit that sort of confused me because you cited um, December outperformance of gold versus stocks by two to one since since uh, 2013. Is it just the 2013? Because then you also say that in November, if the S&P rallies, then it's even then that's an even better sort of outcome. But we've only had one easing cycle, really. True, and that, and that, that is a shorter history. Uh-huh. But it is interesting to note that, though, that, that since that time, it's been very consistent every December, being a pretty strong performance for gold, especially when there is a rally in the stock market in November. Um, what's also interesting that in September, gold tends to get sold off over every single year that time, too. So I think this is what investors maybe are doing. It gets sold off in September. And we visited again in November, December. So I think this seasonality plays a role. Carter, I asked you a few weeks ago what you thought about the idea of seasonality, and you basically said that it was bunk. And so I'm, just, I'm curious what sure. you're, because you're looking at well, that, and it's, I can it, see uh, the uh, wheels bunks, turning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about all this. I, I think, look, there are a lot of, there's this. For instance, you know, how does the stock market do in years then in five? Guess what? It's up almost every time. But here we go. In 2025, would you put everything you have on the market because it goes up in the years five? Meaning it's not to say numerology and there is seasonality, but you can at this point get any data series to make any case one once. Right. And so uh, I think there's a a lot to being very mindful of data series. Uh, But one thing is this, that uh, I think statistically you need something like 130 inputs 
to officially have something be statistically meaningful. And uh, almost all data series in the stock market, 13 years out of 15, there's just not enough sample sets. Right, right, right. Let's, let's say the data is, is a good indicator. What is the, the fundamental story? Because it sounds like you're saying that gold right now is telling us a story of deflation, that that's, that's what is driving that story. And that notion of inflation coming down sharply is a good, good thing for the markets. It is because, you know, if you listen to Waller today, who was, I think, kind of extraordinary in, in his comments, he really started confirming what the Fed is moving towards to, right? We have a dis- descending inflation, so the real rate is, is high, positive, and they could lower that nominal rate. I think that gives gold a bit because ultimately that's the true story of, of I think, the gold rally in the past. Um, you know, it is interesting to, to think about gold as this smile idea. So I was telling Carter before, you have the dollar smile, the dollar goes up when there's uncertainty and there's a strong economy. Similarly for gold, there's uncertainty next year. We have an election. We don't know what's going to happen. We get a recession, maybe maybe not. So lo- lots of uncertainty. So that probably is part of the other reason why gold is up. And at the same time, gold rallies when there's this risk on feel in the markets. And that's really when, when uh, real rates and interest rates are declining. So I think... This gives the gold, I think, a really good push for the breakout. So I'm with Guy and with, with Carter. It's likely going to break out to the upside. Ben, good to see you. Thank good you. Ben Emmons. Coming up, the China trade. Big names heading in opposite directions as the country deals with a major outbreak. All the details ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing in the green today, the Dow is up uh, 83 points. The S&P up a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq leading the gains up nearly a tenth of a percent here as well. Three tenths, I should say. Um, In terms of stocks that have been uh, moving today, payment stocks continuing to surge here. We got PayPal up 3.4 percent, Block up 5, and Affirm up 11.5. Those holiday numbers about how many people were using Buy Now, Pay Later services really helping there. And shares of CrowdStrike on the move after reporting its results. Shares are lower by 1.5 percent after the company posted a beat on the top and the bottom line. Coming up, all the headlines out of China, Alibaba and Pinduoduo diverging in today's session as the country faces a major outbreak. Our own Eunice Yoon is here. Come on. In the house with us for the first time since before the pandemic. Her take on how China has changed and the latest on the next outbreak. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Monday. The U.S. listed ADR PDD holdings surging more than 18% today. The parent company of Pinduoduo and Timu reported a 94% year-over-year revenue increase for its third quarter. Alibaba dropping today on the back of that news. This comes also as Chinese-founded fast fashion retailer Xi'an files to go public. To help us break it down, CNBC's Eunice Yun is here on set for the first time in four years. Eunice, welcome. It is a pleasure to see you in person, a pleasure to have you here on set. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about this this IPO and how it's impacting the others here. It's really interesting because it's really taken the U.S. by storm. Mm-hmm. It's a threat to other retailers, and yet it really it thrives on this sort of loophole 
in tariff land right. where they can just ship directly to the consumer because it's worth so little, yeah. there are no taxes on it. Right. And so that, I mean, that's a huge part of the business model here. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think that um, what, what I think maybe people might find interesting about Sheen um, over here is that in China, nobody knows about it. You know, from a consumer's perspective, because it's not, Timu and Shein don't have any presence in China. But from a seller perspective, it's really seen as a really good way to sell to U.S. consumers. And especially with all the economic uncertainty, um, a lot of sellers are, are looking for that kind of opening. So just thinking about how we saw Alibaba shares decline, the thinking is really that the sellers will sell on a Shein or a Timo instead of Alibaba. So it loses right. that part of the business as opposed to the sale because they're selling directly to Chinese. Companies. Well, I think that's part of it. But also PDD has been discounting so well and um, and really um, kind of leading in that area of a lot of these bargain um, sales and, and Gen Z, too. The consumers are being seen as as trying to strive for a bargain as opposed to striving to have like the best and most luxurious item. Like maybe you want to have secondhand um, LV bag or something like that, which wasn't really the case, you know, years ago. So it's just because the economic times are, are so negative right now that uh, people are looking for different ways to save money. So Eunice, since you've been gone, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but TikTok has come under a lot of regulatory scrutiny here yeah. in the U.S. So I wonder yeah. if these companies that are really selling into the U.S. and there's a whole host of things here, right? So now they have this consumer relationship. You know, TikTok was very different. It's about data. It's about, you know, yes. user generated content. That's but right. now it's a financial transaction. I wonder, yeah. you know, as we we start testing or they start testing the waters for U.S. investor appetite for these things, is regulatory going to be a big risk for some of these stories? I, I think so. I mean, it's just that the all of these companies, one of the things that they have in common is that they're Chinese companies or companies that had roots in China that are trying to play down the roots, mm-hmm. right? And so um, with, with Asheen, I thought, okay, U.S. investors are going to want to know what the corporate governance is, how the structure is of this company. Because when you look at for Sheen on or the um, the founders and the people who are around Sheen on Chinese databases, they it, it's like it's very murky, you know. So you could see that the founder, who's um, a guy who's named Sky or Chris Xu, so. In China, he first was known as Sky, and after that, now I think he's going to be more of Chris uh, overseas. But that um, his, you know, you, you saw that he had a lot of different companies. They're kind of related to Xi'an, and then now some of the other executives are sort of related, but not really. And then there's like a link to the to the Singaporean entity. So there's just all of this kind of. I guess it's like a lack of transparency over exactly how it's all linked together. I think that's something that they're going to look for. And then to your point about the the customs of the parcels, like one of the big selling points for Sheen is that instead of the traditional model of mass mass manufacturing and getting the prices down, what they're doing is they have these small batches and then they're able to sell into the U.S. market. And one of the ways that they're able to sell into the U.S. market is with these tiny under $800 you know, consignees. You don't actually have any documentation that you need. Right. So for customs, there isn't a lot of information then about um, who they're they're working with. Uh, it's, I mean, it's amazing. You can buy a $4.99 kid's bathing suit and get it shipped from China in like a day. Right. You know this. I have done that. <laughs> so she's heard. I have done that. <laughs> 
I mentioned the Economic Times. You all know that it's it's a very precarious time in China. Youth unemployment is very high, etc. Yeah. And now there's a health scare. Yeah. What can you tell us about the latest scare? Is it COVID-related? Is it something completely different? Well, right now, according to the Chinese health authorities and the WHO, there is no sign of a new pathogen. They don't say that it's COVID. It's just a mix of a lot of different pathogens, bacterial infections, viruses, such as RSV, that have been seen in other countries. So the WHO has said that this is something that, that you guys were seeing about a year ago, where there suddenly isn't as much masking and kids are getting sick because there just hasn't been as much exposure. So they're saying this is what we're seeing in China now. But because there has been such a trauma over the lockdowns and the and COVID there and just the lack of transparency around it, um, probably overseas as well as, well as domestically, uh, there's just a lot of rumors about what is this? Is this another variant? Is this of COVID? Is this um, just something all new altogether? And it, it's not it's not un, like totally unjustified as to why there would be this this um, skepticism. Eunice, thank you. Great to see you. You'll be here all week, right? I will. Hopefully, we'll see you again, Eunice Yoon. All right, sneaky, sneaky small caps. We're diving into the Russell to drill down on two names that one of our traders says could be under the radar. Winners into year end. Plus, Tesla shares rallying today, even as production problems mount for the Cybertruck. We'll take a look under the hood of this EV stock next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Don't look now, but small caps could be primed for a breakout into year-end. The Russell 2000 has underperformed the larger indices this year, but after jumping 10% in the last month, one of our traders is picking out two names to keep an eye on. Julie, what names are you watching? You know, I'm trying to think of, are we out of the woods yet, right? And I've wanted to kind of bug Carter about these charts. Fundamentally, I think both of these businesses are looking kind of interesting at this point. The first one is Molis. Molis is a boutique investment bank that's based in Los Angeles, started by uh, star banker Ken Molis. And his approach started right before the financial crisis, where in down periods, he would take that opportunity to hire the best bankers on the street. And you know he's created a, a real powerhouse. Obviously, right now with M&A very, very soft, it's been a challenging environment, but they don't tend to cut costs. They just ride through that and keep their talent over the long term. So I think for a long-term investor, this is interesting. The other one that I'm kind of curious about as far as is this out of the woods is Aspen Technology. This is a very high quality software business. Some of its end markets in terms of understanding subsurface engineering have been a little bit softer. I love its digital grid management uh, product set though. That's growing very strong. I'm curious what Carter thinks as far as where are we with these charts? Are these in your uh, portfolio currently, Julie? Yes, these are long-term holdings for us. Okay, so Carter, your review of the charts, please. There we go, a little collaboration. So let's look at Mollus. Uh, it is a textbook example of a bearish to bullish reversal, a stock that dropped from 77 as low as uh, 35 and is making the turn. The sequencing has changed a series now of, of higher highs and higher lows. I like it a lot. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> now Aspen, uh, for me, is a pair of twos. You can see the volatility here, gapping up, gapping down. Must be saying things on a quarterly basis that no one can quite contend with. Uh, my hunch is to leave this one alone, neither be long nor short. All right. Coming up, Tesla's precious cargo, the EV maker, will unveil its long-awaited Cybertruck at a special event this week. But is it worth the hype? Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla getting ready to unveil Precious Cargo, the EV maker holding its Cybertruck delivery event this Thursday. Manufacturing has been delayed several times. Elon is also set to go one-on-one tomorrow with our own Andrew Ross Sorkin at his DealBook conference. Tesla shares are up this month, over 20%, in fact. This rise coming in the face of his recent controversy surrounding X and the wave of anti-Semitism on that social media site. Um, a lot of questions to ask. Um, so, Dan, yeah. what would you want to ask Elon so, Musk? The, the kids call it the CT on the, on the Twitter, okay? That's the Cybertruck. Oh, okay. Mm. I think the Cybertruck is going to be the new Coke of EV launches. I think it's going to be the Apple Newton of EV launches. I think it might be the Edsel of EV launches. Mm. And I'm just saying, the kids on the Twitter are like talking about the CT like it's going to transform the story. This is going to be the thing for 2024. So I just don't think it's going to be that thing. And I mean, the manufacturing is going to be a beast, which he's talked about already on Twitter and in other venues. I mean, it's made out of stainless steel, which is much harder to shape and mold, apparently. Not that I have any experience personally with that, but versus regular commodity steel. Yeah, DeLorean tried that. Didn't work out. Well, this is what I would ask him. This time last year, you said that margins would contract, but you wouldn't get down to legacy automaker margins. And somewhere between 17 and 18 percent, are you concerned with all the price cuts that it's going to eat into your margins? And if so, what are we looking at? That would be my question. Quick take on the charts, Carter. Yeah, well, Tesla kind of goes in the pair of twos category as really? well. It's the same level it was essentially three years ago. A lot of volatility, but it's not really progressing. And then as to that truck, I think it's cool until one day you walk into your garage and go, my God, that thing's ugly. And you <laughs> never drive it again. <laughs> Up next, final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. In case you're just tuning in, we want to let you know that Charlie Munger has died. He was Warren Buffett's right-hand man and the former Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman. Munger was just over a month away from his 100th birthday. CNBC will have continuing coverage on Munger's life and his massive impact on the investing world on Mad Money with Jim Cramer and later on as well on The Last Call at 7. Meantime, it's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie Beal. In the spirit of Charlie Munger, I tried to think of the highest quality business, and VRSK, Verisk, is probably one of them. Carter. Gold or silver or both. Precious metals. Dan. Yeah, I like Julie's Molus call. This company had $5.40 in earnings in 2021. If the cycle turns, they're going to look really cheap in 2024. Dan likes it. Guy. First of all, it's great to have Eunice here, and we were saying off she should be nominated and or win a Peabody Award. You think about from 2021, 22, incredible. It's great to have her here. Rest in peace, Mr. Munger. And again, condolences to everybody at Berkshire Hathaway and the family. Agnico Eagle Mines, AEM. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.